0: Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. Hey, uh, we're starting our new series called Identity Theft Next Weekend. Uh, it's our Bible study series. So you're gonna be hearing about that and you're gonna hear about opportunities to plug into small groups. So if you haven't had a chance to do that, there'll be people in the lobby next week who could help you out uh, with that. But at the beginning of this new year, what I wanna do is I wanna give you a talk that I actually gave a, a pieces of it about 10 years ago and it has to do with the, uh, the idea of the reliability of, of the scriptures. Um, And I I got an email not too long ago that uh, could kind of get us started in this that kind of helps you, Uh, the the question, there's a question here in this email that is is prompted, and don't be distracted by uh, the bluntness of the email, but it kind of gets at what we're talking about today. The email says, you Bible-thumping Christians are so deluded and stupid. The Bible has been so changed and translated and mistranslated over time that it cannot be trusted. Didn't you play the telephone game when you were a kid? Whatever the first person whispered to the second person is going to be very different from what the last person hears. Stop acting as if you have all the answers. The Bible is a a book of myths. Happy New Year. Now, I don't know what kind of emotions arise in you when you hear me read that, Um, uh, but if you look past that and you kind of dig down, there's actually a a pretty important question that's asked here in this, or a statement that's being made about the reliability and the trustworthiness of the scriptures. Um, And and if you've been around Sam Alliance any length of time, you know that we are a people who uh, hold the scriptures in high regard. Every once in a while, you'll see me hold the scriptures and do this and say, we are people who come under the word, meaning that we believe the Bible to be authoritative, and that we align our lives with what we believe to be the revealed word of God. And so our preaching flows from our small groups flow from that. Our ministry flows uh, from what we believe to be on God's heart for us. Um, but this question that's being asked is, you know, it's a really important question for those of us who are Christian, non-Christian. If we're Christian, how do we know that this is, I mean can this be trusted? Because we're we're coming under it. We're doing everything. It's flowing from that and taking our wisdom from it. And um, maybe we're we're wrong. Maybe maybe the telephone game has been played. Maybe maybe there have been some myths inserted. How how do we know for sure? And if you're a non-Christian or if you're a seeker, um, maybe maybe that'll be confirmed for you you as you do some looking at it. Or maybe maybe you'll discover that the Bible is really very reliable and very trustworthy. And if so, then you'll want to come under what God is saying to you as well. But the bottom line here is this question of, you know, can, how do we know that there's only 10 commandments? Maybe there were 12. Maybe John fourteen six, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, maybe it actually said in the very beginning that Jesus said, I, I'm one of the ways. I mean, how how do you know the Bible is the word of God? And maybe for some in the room, you say, well, it's the word of God because I I believe it's the word of God, and that that, that settles it for me. I'm I'm good with that. If that's where you're at, I just want to say that that's exactly what a Muslim would say about the Quran, and that's exactly what a Hindu would say about their Vedas, and that's exactly what a Buddhist would say about the Buddhist scriptures. So really what you have to get into is... Is there a way for us to know, is there a way for us to discover that that this truly is the revealed word of God? Now to help us on that journey, let's just um, understand that Christianity is a historical faith. Meaning that there are actual historical events, there are places that are recorded in the Bible, uh, events like the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, which by the way are mentioned in other historical works. And there's the ascension of Christ. There's the birth of the church. These are historical events, things that took place in history. And if you're defining history, it's important you understand what what it is. So history is knowledge of the past based on testimony. You and I have very strong beliefs of what is a, a historical event, an event that you and I weren't even alive for. But because we read it, we studied it in school, or we read about it in an ancient, uh, ancient book or ancient literature, um, or it's just a known fact, we, we, we trust history. Let me give you an example. This guy here, uh, you, you all know who he is, right? Who is it? George Washington. Yeah, not a trick question. George Washington, okay? George Washington was the first president of the United States. How many of you? We're alive when George Washington was the first president of the United States. I see, yeah, see that hand. Uh, there's a few. There was a few all weekend long. Very old people. Um, uh, none of us were alive, right? No one was alive, but but we firmly believe that George was the first U.S. president, and rightly so, because. Literature tells us that. You could travel to the East Coast. You could go to Mount Vernon and visit his old house. You could see um, uh, archeological stuff that would confirm that he was our first US president. That's the gift that history comes and gives to us. It's this gift of, of learning and, and understanding. And, and the Bible as well contains history. So when you're, when you're trying to understand the, the reliability of scripture, if you're trying to answer the question, I mean, how do we know the telephone game didn't take place? How do we know there was this original message, which by the way, the original message is called an autographer. The first time any ancient literal, literary work is written down, that's the original autograph. It's, it's the autographa. And when that's written down, how do we know that, you know, it got said to this one person and that person said to this person, but it kind of tweaked a little bit and it got to the next person. It got changed a little bit. And when you get all the way down here, what you get is something that's pretty drastically different than that. So how do you know? Well, one of the ways, first of all, that the message was conveyed is, yes, it was conveyed orally a lot of times, but when it comes to the scriptures, it was written down. It was written down sometimes on animal skins, but most oftentimes it was written on a thing called papyrus. I'm gonna invite the ushers to come forward now because they've got little buckets, and in the buckets are little strips of papyrus. Because I want, this is for you, you can put it, use it as a bookmark later, but I want you to see what papyrus uh, looks like. This is one of the very few times you get to take something out of the offering plate, so just go for it, okay? Um, And uh, if you're in the last row and you see a lot of extras, grab one for a friend. Um, But uh, I wanna make sure everyone gets one. So here's how we get papyrus. In ancient, remember now, in the 1500s, there's this invention called the Gutenberg Press. You probably learned this in school. The Gutenberg Press is in the 1500s, and it its very first book it will print is the Bible. There's the Gutenberg Bible. But before the 1500s, much of the ancient literary works were written on what you were gonna be holding in your hand, papyrus. How papyrus is made, uh, papyrus is typically made in in, in, like the Nile River Delta area. There's this reed, the papyri reed that grows in in the shallow waters of the Nile. You cut just below the water line, take the papyri reed, slit it, roll it out, and put a weight on it so you get a flat little strip. And you would do this many times. If you were making a sheet of papyrus or a scroll, you would just keep adding to it. And then you would put a layer of glue on it. And that would create for you a sheet or a scroll of papyrus. I've got a, uh, a little piece of papyrus here. There's a painting on it. And um, th- this is, you'll see if you hold up your papyrus to the light, you'll see this kind of this crisscross pattern in your, in your papyrus, and that is the overlapping of the reed uh, there from uh, the, the, the manufacturing process. Now, here's, what I want, here's why I want you to have this in your hands, because when the original was written, and for example, let's say the Gospel of John. 90 A.D. John, the disciple who would be an apostle, he writes his gospel. He writes the book of Revelation. Uh, we studied 1 John in the fall. He writes it on papyrus, and um, and and yet the, the, there's a shelf life with papyrus, 80 to 200 years, depending on climate, and depending on exposure to the sun. That papyrus will begin to deteriorate, meaning it becomes brittle. It breaks the ink on the papyrus will begin to fade. And uh, so what you would do, if, if John's gospel is, is, is sent out and it's, it's, it's there, it's, it's starting to get old, it's starting to get brittle, and it, it's, it's starting to break apart, what you would do is you would take that original, that, that autographer, and you'd take it to FedEx Kinkos, right? And you'd make copies. But FedEx Kinkos in the first and second century would be uh, scribes. These men whose job was to copy meticulously an original. And can I give you an example of the meticulous nature of their copying is that they would count letters on the papyrus, they would count words, they would make sure that there was not an extra letter, that there was not an extra word on that copy. So you've got the original, you've got a copy, you get copies made of copies, You get copies made of the copies of the copies. And you can see how it kind of starts going out here. Now let me just, let me show you one of these. Here's a picture of John chapter one. This is on a piece of papyrus that that was discovered, a manuscript that was discovered. And if you look, you can see the edges are brittle and they've broken. You can see holes. You can see ink that's faded at the edges. And this would be a classic example of a need to make a copy. Now. Hold that in mind now because here's what you're doing. If you're trying to answer the question, hey, how do we know that what we have in our Bibles is actually what was written originally, one of the first questions that you will want to ask, and by the way, people who are textual critics, this is a science, what they would do is they want the date that the original was written and then they look for copies of the original because none of the original works exist. But you try and find the copy and you hone in on the earliest copy. Meaning is, if, if the original is written in 100 B.C., but the earliest manuscript you, know, you, you find is dated by scientists is like 700 A.D., then you realize you have an 800 year span between the autographer and your manuscript. Which means that's, that's a pretty big gap and a lot can happen in 800 years. Okay, so what textual critics will do is is try, if you're trying to figure out the reliability, not just of the Bible, but of any literary work, you want that gap to be as short as possible, as minimal as possible, because then you have a higher reliability and trustworthiness in the fact that this was originally what was written down. So let me give you some examples. Uh, There's this guy named Herodotus. Herodotus was a historian, and uh, he's, he's often referred to as the father of history. Uh, he wrote his book of history in 450 B.C. and gave it a very snappy title. He called it history, okay? Now, the autographer for Herodotus' work was 450 B.C. Manuscripts have been discovered of Herodotus' work, and the earliest one dated by folks who are textual critics will tell you it's around, around AD 1000, which means there is a gap of 1,450 years between the original and the earliest manuscripts that are there. This, a second work is done by a guy named Livy. Livy wrote uh, The History of Rome. Much of what you know about Rome and in, uh, in, in its history comes from Livy. And he wrote his book, he wrote his, uh, his, his account in 30 BC, and manuscripts have been discovered through archeological digs. And they have been dated around 400 years after the original, which is quite significant compared to Herodotus. So now you have a 400-year gap, which means that the reliability and trustworthiness of Livy's work is, is greater than Herodotus' work. Now, it doesn't mean that the manuscripts we have of Herodotus' work is, is you know, we, we should just pitch it. No, it just means that there's greater reliability here with Livy. This guy you will recognize. His name is Aristotle. Aristotle wrote his poetics in 343 B.C. And um, manuscripts have been discovered of Aristotle's work and there is a, about a, a 1,350 to 1,400 year gap between when the original was written and when the, when the Poetics, the first manuscripts we have are Aristotle's Poetics. Another name you're gonna recognize is Plato. Plato's Tetralogies, uh, the, the, the Trial of Socrates, uh, the, the, the Sophist. Um, there is, from the time he wrote it, 400 BC, to the earliest manuscripts that have been dated by secular scientists, there is a 1200 year gap Now let me just pause here and and make a comment. Nobody questions the reliability of Plato's works or Aristotle's works or Herodotus' works. In fact, in universities all around the world, Aristotelian and Platonic thought is taught and there's no question. And, And I'm not saying there should be questions. I'm just saying there's a pretty big gap between what is accepted as a, as a literary work that's trustworthy and reliable. Now, if you're asking the question, uh, did, did the telephone game take place? I mean, how do we really know? And, you know, the Bible's a book of myths. What you want to know is, okay, so where does the, where does the New Testament fall on this? What's, what's the time gap? And remember, the, the, the smaller the gap, the, the more reliable that literary work is. Friends, the New Testament has been dated by secular scholars to within 50 to 80 years of the original. Meaning there's manuscripts that have been discovered that have been dated in the lifetime of some of those who wrote them. Which means that compared, if we're gonna accept these works and call them reliable, then in no way should we question the reliability and trustworthiness of what has been written down in the New Testament because that, that gap is really narrow. Now, here's the deal. Stick with me here, because I am going somewhere, okay? I'm, I'm gonna, I will, I will make, make a point here, but I want you to see that if you're, answering, if you're asking that question, hey, how, how do we know that what we have here, I mean, you're teaching the Bible, and how do we know that was originally was written down? I mean, isn't it a bunch of myths? Didn't legends creep in? And that was a long time ago. Well, 50 to 80 years, that doesn't give you enough time for legend to creep in. But the second question you have to be asking is okay, manuscripts have been discovered, but how many? And answering the question how many is really important. Here's why. Imagine that there are a thousand manuscripts that have been discovered of the Gospel of John. And you read all 1,000 of them. And in each one of them, you come to John 3, 16. And in 995 of them, you read, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. But in three of them, you read, for God so liked the world, he sent his one and only son. And in two of them, it says, ah, God kind of shrugged his shoulders about the world, like, eh, I sort of like him, and I'll send my son. Well, what did the original say? The more manuscripts you have, lead you to be able to scientifically just deduce what was on the original. So in that example I'm giving you, you can with 99.5% accuracy, rebuild or rewrite the original and know with 99.5% accuracy that the original said, God so loved the world. So the more manuscripts you have, the more certain you can be of what was written down. Is that making sense to you? Okay. So let's look at some of these works and let's see where the New Testament stacks in regards to numbers of manuscripts. We'll start with the first one here, Aristotle. 49 manuscripts of Aristotle's work. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad number. I'm just saying recognize that Aristotle is taught with confidence in universities around the world from 49 manuscripts that have been discovered. The next one to point out here is Herodotus. 109, there's 109, which is pretty amazing since it was written in 450 B.C. They have 109 manuscripts. Next one here we'll get to is Livy, History of Rome. We got 150 copies of Livy's work. Now, that, that we're, now we're building a, a bigger pool to test of what was originally written down. We're gaining confidence. Go to the next one here. This is Plato's work. Fifteen years ago, there were only nine copies of Plato's tetralogies. Now, through discoveries, through archaeological digs, there's 210. Um, so that, that the numbers are, are, are rising. Uh, how many of have read Homer's Iliad? Okay, okay so Homer's Iliad, uh, the, the story of Troy, Trojan horse, um, 1,800 copies of that have been discovered through, throughout history. So you, you can see that we're, we're getting higher here, and here's what happens. When you get to the New Testament, not only do you have a gap of 50 to 80 years, which is unbelievable, the number of manuscripts is over 24,000. 24,362. And if you add the manuscript evidence that's been found from the Old Testament, that's just a New Testament number. If you add the Old Testament, that number goes north of 66,000 different manuscripts. Remember, the more you have, the higher chance you can of recreating what was originally written down scientifically. This is an astounding amount of of evidence. In fact, one scholar's name is Bruce Mesker says, in contrast with these figures of other ancient works, the textual critic of the New Testament is embarrassed by a wealth of material. So what he's saying is that this is, this whole idea of, remember the email. You guys are deluded. Isn't it the telephone game? Friends, the the telephone game wasn't played very long at all. Actually, in some of these manuscripts, you could go talk to the original writer. Not so with other literary works. And there is an abundance of manuscripts. And you also need to know that they were written by eyewitnesses. These were people who saw Jesus. we were talking about the New Testament. John, uh, the disciple and apostle in 1 John 1.1 says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. John had dinner with Jesus. John uh, touched Jesus. John heard Jesus talk. I mean, he experienced Jesus and he is one of the eyewitnesses that we have who wrote some of the Bible. Peter, a disciple and apostle, writes in 2 Peter chapter one, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honoring glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Peter's talking about that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, when God speaks to his son. Peter was there. We, we, we ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Not only is there a short gap, not only is there an abundance of manuscripts, you have to remember that they were written by eyewitnesses. But that doesn't mean that what they wrote down was true. Because if you're, if you're coming from that, that, that skeptic vantage point, that, that's a good question to ask. Okay. You've answered the the time gap thing, you've answered the manuscript thing, and yeah, there are eyewitnesses, but what uh, what if they kind of embellished? What if they kind of stretched things? Well, there's multiple eyewitnesses accounts and they, and they they corroborate, but you have to understand this. Of the 11 remaining disciples since Judas took his life, 10 of the 11 were willing to be tortured and executed for what they saw and what they wrote. They, they were willing to die for the message that they were speaking. Friends, there are people, people don't go to the grave for a lie. If they know something is, is not true, as, you know, as, soon, as soon as physical harm comes their way, they're, they're gonna throw in the towel. 10 of the 11 were executed for their message. The only one who wasn't was John. He was actually exiled on an island called Patmos, And he was actually after some time, he then left Patmos. But short time gap, abundance of manuscripts, eyewitness testimonies, these guys went to their graves with willing to die for the message. How do we know? Can the Bible be trusted? Can the scriptures, are the scriptures reliable? Well, I I think you kind of get the point. The science behind it would say, yeah, more reliable than accepted literary works that are out there. And, um, and yet you might say, okay, great. Went to school today. Learned some stuff. What, it, what does that got to do with anything? Well, it's, got, it's got a ton to do with everything. Because here's a, a couple of things that we need to know at the beginning of a year. In fact, if you've got your Bible, would you grab your Bible and, and hold it in your hand? Um, and if, if, if your Bible is your iPad or a phone that's got an app on it, I want you to hold that in your hand as well, okay? Just hold it in front of you. Here's what I want, here's what I want you, at the front of 2019, here's what I want you to realize. Recognize the price that was paid for you and I to have the scriptures. Yes, a price of scribes copying and copying and copying. I mean, there was hard work that went into that, but beyond that, realized that not only time was paid, but blood was spilt Consider the name John Wycliffe. Wycliffe, in the late eighteen, late thirteen hundreds, saw poverty in his city, in his village, and he realized that the way out of poverty was literacy, and he knew that the Bible was in Latin, and so Wycliffe wanted to translate the Bible from this language very few people knew into the common language of the day. People would get to know who God is and poverty issues would be addressed at the same time. So he commissioned, he gathers scholars and they begin translating the Bible from Latin into English. Now what happens is some people hear about this and a bill is actually introduced in Parliament in Wycliffe's country to stop this project from moving forward. Because the religious structures of the day are not happy that the Bible is gonna be put in the common language of the day. The project goes on for 13 years. Wycliffe actually, he he dies during that time uh, of of illness and uh, he never sees the end of it, but the scholars stick with it and the Wycliffe Bible is translated and put into the hands of the common people. But this so enrages the religious structures of the day that they go and they round up these scholars and they torture them and and murder them and then what happens is Pope Martin in 1425 issues an edict and they go, the people who take this edict go and they exhume the body of John Wycliffe they exhume the body and they take his remains, whatever his bones, whatever's there in the grave, and they burn them and they grind them into a dust and throw John, he's been dead for 40 years, but they take the dust from his bones that they burn and they throw it into the river Swift to send a message. But Wycliffe's writings got out and a guy named Jan Hus, who was a pastor in Prague in modern-day Czechoslovakia, uh, in, 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 in this, in this Church, Huss says to him, I I need to get, I got the same problem of poverty, and we don't have a Bible that's in the common language, so he gathers scholars. He gets those scholars, and they begin translating, and they translate the Bible into Czech, from Latin, Latin into Czech, and it gets into the common language. The religious structures of the day discover this, and they go down and track down as many of these scholars as they can. Many are fleeing for their lives, but many are tortured mercilessly, and and executed, Jan Hus is captured, he is tortured as well, and he's tied to a stake and he's burned alive. William Tyndale, about 100 years later, will translate the Bible again into English and his scholars will be hunted down. His best friend will betray him because the religious structures of the day didn't want that Bible in the common language. And and Tyndale is, is betrayed by a best friend as they're sharing a meal in Antwerp. He's arrested, he's tortured, and he's burned alive at the stake. Friends, do you you realize what we have in our hand? Recognize the price that was paid so that you and I could open an app on our phones, so that you and I could turn pages in in our Bibles. I was talking to a gentleman after the last service he served uh, in, in, uh, in the old USSR, he served in the, in the military. It was illegal for him to have a Bible. His mother tore a page a week out of the Bible and mailed it to him. So that over the time he served in the military, it was dangerous to be caught with the Bible. We're not, we're not talking hundreds of years ago now, we're just talking within the last you know, 40 to 50 years. It was was illegal to have a Bible, but his mother sent page by page, week after week, and he built his own Bible so that he could have it. Do you realize the risks that have been taken just so that someone could read? Do you realize the blood that was shed so that you and I would have the privilege of holding the word of God in our hands? It's unbelievable. And not only should we recognize the price that was paid for this, You must treasure it, I mean read it, memorize it, meditate on it. It's the beginning of a year. Some of you have been doing this for many, many years, reading through the Bible, maybe through the New Testament in a year, and then taking the Old Testament the next year. For others of you, maybe you're not familiar with it at all. Don't go to a place of guilt or condemnation. But what if this next year, You just took a chapter a day, beginning in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, and you just read a chapter. Do five out of seven days, give yourself a break. Five out of seven, just one chapter, and begin treasuring the word of God. Friends, that's what people have done through the ages. The psalmist, Psalm 119, uh, expressed the treasure that's in God's word And I'm really going to need my glasses because this is a small print. Throw them at me, honey. All right. Oh, there it is. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Listen to how he rhapsodizes with the Hebrew language. Psalm 119, every Hebrew letter, using every Hebrew letter just to talk about God's word. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Open my eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instructions. The psalmist continues. How sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The teaching of your word gives light so that even the simple can understand. I rejoice in your word like one who discovers a great treasure. Friends, did we get the scriptures because it is the telephone game and or is it reliable and trustworthy? The evidence suggests it's very trustworthy, written by eyewitnesses who gave their lives for it so that you and I could hold it in our hands and know who God is. What if this next year we pursued him and pursued him by pursuing his word. Not to commit the sin of bible allotry, making an idol out of the Bible. No, the triune God is God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, not God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Bible. But the triune God revealed himself through the scriptures so that you and I would be in relationship with him. Let's pray about that. So Lord, it's a new year. There are some of us in the room, Lord, that, man, we've tried this, and it's just so hard. And Lord, would you spark a new hunger in us? The, the pages don't just have ink on them, Lord. The pages have your voice on them. Would you create and begin a new hunger? Would you cause an appetite to ar- arise among your people to know who you are by reading your Word? Would you open our minds so that we might understand? Sometimes we just don't, we don't get it. Holy Spirit, fill us, empower us to understand what you're saying to us. Reveal yourself to us. And today we say thank you. Thank you for the gift of the scriptures. You are good. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.